Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about post-operative care. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, as always you can follow along at zerotofinals.com slash post dash op or in the general surgery section of the Zero to Finals surgery book. So let's get straight into it. Immediately after an operation, the patient will go to the recovery room and be monitored closely whilst they regain consciousness from the anaesthetic. Once they're conscious and stable, they can return to the ward. Patients may be transferred to HDU or ICU, depending on their condition and their monitoring requirements after the operation. Let's talk about enhanced recovery. Enhanced recovery aims to get the patient back to their pre-operative condition as quickly as possible by encouraging them to be independent, mobilise early and take an appropriate diet. There's increased nutritional requirements after the physiological stress of surgery, so they need to have sufficient calories. The aim is to discharge the patient as soon as possible as this leads to better outcomes for the patient. The principles of enhanced recovery are good preparation for surgery, for example a healthy diet and exercise, using minimally invasive surgery when possible, for example keyhole surgery or using local anaesthetic to do the operation, using adequate analgesia, having good nutritional support around the time of surgery, having an early return to an oral diet, taking food by mouth, and also an oral fluid intake, getting the patient off IV fluids as quickly as possible, mobilising the patient early, avoiding drains and nasogastric or NG tubes wherever possible, and then removing the catheter as early as possible, and discharging the patient as early as possible. And all of these things lead to a better outcome if they're possible. Let's talk about analgesia. Using adequate analgesia in the post-operative period is important as this encourages the patient to mobilise, ventilate their lungs fully, which reduces the risk of chest infections and atelectasis, which is collapse of the lungs, and have an adequate oral intake. If they're in pain, they're less likely to take food or fluids. Analgesia, or pain medication, is usually started in the theatre at the time of the operation by the anaesthetist. And this might be regular paracetamol, NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and if required, stronger medications such as opiates. An example opiate regime is regular modified release oxycodone with immediate release oxycodone as required for breakthrough pain. So in this example, the modified release oxycodone works in the background to give a baseline level of analgesia And then when the pain breaks through this baseline, the immediate release oxycodone is used to control that breakthrough pain. Analgesia should be reduced and stopped as the symptoms are improving. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs such as ibuprofen, naproxen and diclofenac may be inappropriate or contraindicated in patients with asthma, renal impairment heart disease or stomach ulcers and this is worth remembering because this is quite a common topic in exams. Let's talk about patient-controlled analgesia. Patient-controlled analgesia or PCA 
involves an intravenous infusion of a strong opiate, for example morphine, oxycodone or fentanyl, and this is attached to a patient-controlled pump. This involves the patient pressing a button as the pain starts to develop, for example during a contraction in labour, to administer a bolus of short-acting opiate medication. The button will stop responding for a set time after administration of a bolus to prevent overuse. Only the patient should push the button and it's important that the nurse or the doctor doesn't get involved because this is a patient-controlled pump. Patient-controlled analgesia requires careful monitoring and there needs to be input from an anaesthetist and facilities in place if adverse events occur. This includes access to naloxone, which can be used to reverse the effects of opiates in respiratory depression. Also antiemetics to be used if there's nausea and atropine to be used if there's bradycardia or a slow heart rate. Avoid other opiates while a patient-controlled analgesia is in use. The machine is also locked to prevent it from being tampered with. Let's talk about post-operative nausea and vomiting. It's quite common for patients to develop nausea and vomiting in the first 24 hours after an operation, and this is called post-operative nausea and vomiting or PONV. There are many causes, including the surgical procedure itself, the anaesthetic, the pain, and the opiate medication that's used to control the pain. Risk factors for post-operative nausea and vomiting are being female, history of motion sickness or previous post-operative nausea and vomiting, being a non-smoker. Interestingly, smokers are less likely to get post-operative nausea and vomiting. Use of post-operative opiate medications, a younger age, and the use of volatile anaesthetics. Prophylactic antiemetics or anti-sickness medications are often given at the end of a procedure by the anaesthetist to prevent them from getting nausea and vomiting. Common options for prophylaxis given at the end of an operation are ondansetron, which is a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, and remember, ondansetron needs to be avoided in patients that are at risk of a prolonged QT interval, as this can affect the heart and cause arrhythmias. Dexamethasone is another option, which is a corticosteroid, and this needs to be used with caution in patients that are diabetic or immunocompromised, as steroids increase blood sugar levels and they can also suppress the immune system. And the final option is droperidol which is a dopamine D2 receptor antagonist. And this needs to be avoided in patients with Parkinson's disease. Some examples of rescue antiemetics which are used in the post-operative period if nausea and vomiting occur are again ondansetron, also prochlorperazine, which is a dopamine D2 receptor antagonist, and this needs to be avoided in patients with Parkinson's disease. And finally, cyclazine, which is a histamine H1 receptor antagonist. And this needs to be used with caution in patients who have heart failure or are elderly and frail. Some local guidelines refer to the P6 acupuncture point on the inner wrist. And there's some evidence that pressure to this area can actually reduce nausea, potentially as effectively as antiemetic medications. 
Let's talk about tubes in the postoperative period. Postoperative patients may have a catheter, drains, or a nasogastric tube, and these will need to be monitored and removed when appropriate. Drains are usually removed once they are draining minimal or no blood or fluid. Nasogastric tubes are removed when they're no longer required for nutritional intake or for the drainage of gas or fluid. And catheters are removed when the patient can mobilise to the toilet. Removal of a catheter is called a trial without catheter, or TWOC. It's called this as there's a risk that the patient will find it difficult to pass urine normally and then go into urinary retention after the catheter is removed and the catheter may need to be reinserted for a period before a trial without the catheter can be put in place again. This is quite common, more so in male patients. Let's talk about nutritional support after an operation. Good nutritional support is important for healthy wound healing and recovery from surgery, and a dietitian may be involved. Where possible, patients should get their nutrition via their gastrointestinal tracts, as opposed to IV fluids. Having nutrition via the gastrointestinal tract is called enteral feeding, and this could be by mouth, nasogastric tube, or percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, or PEG. And this is where a tube is inserted from the surface of the abdomen into the stomach. Total parenteral nutrition involves meeting the full ongoing nutritional requirements of the patient using an intravenous infusion. So food is given through an IV infusion. And this is an infusion of a solution of carbohydrates, fats, proteins, vitamins and minerals. This is used where it's not possible to use the gastrointestinal tract for nutrition. For example, if the patient has an ongoing bowel obstruction. A dietitian will guide what you should prescribe for total parenteral nutrition and the dietitian will calculate the exact nutritional requirements of that patient. Let's talk about some post-operative complications. Patients are monitored for a long list of complications that can occur in the post-operative period. And these include anemia, or a low blood count, atelectasis, which is where a portion of the lung collapses due to underventilation of the lung tissue in that area, infections, for example, chest, urinary tract, or wound site infections, wound dehiscence, which is where there's a separation of the surgical wound, particularly after abdominal surgery. Ileus, which is where peristalsis in the bowel is reduced and the patient goes into a type of obstruction where the bowel is just not moving. And this typically occurs after major abdominal surgery. Hemorrhage, with bleeding into either a drain inside the body creating a hematoma or from the wound. Deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Shock due to hypovolemia, secondary to blood loss, sepsis or heart failure. Arrhythmias, for example atrial fibrillation. Acute coronary syndrome, which is a heart attack or myocardial infarction. And cerebrovascular accident, which is a stroke. Acute kidney injury urinary retention requiring catheterization, or delirium, 
which refers to fluctuating consciousness or confusion and is more common in elderly and frail patients. Finally, let's talk about post-operative anemia. After an operation, a full blood count blood test is used to measure the haemoglobin and assess for anemia. In patients with anemia after an operation, treatment is based on individual factors and preferences alongside the local guidelines. As a rough guide, and remember local policies will vary, with a HB under 100 grams per litre, it's worth starting oral iron, for example, ferrosulfate 200 milligrams three times a day for three months. And this additional iron helps the patient to replenish their own haemoglobin. In patients with a haemoglobin under 70 to 80 grams per litre, consider a blood transfusion in addition to oral iron. And the blood transfusion is used to boost up their haemoglobin very quickly. Patients with symptoms of anemia or underlying cardiovascular or respiratory disease may need a transfusion with higher haemoglobin levels, for example under 90 or under 100. It's worth noting that Jehovah's Witnesses may refuse blood transfusions. They often have a written advance directive to state that even in an emergency scenario where they lose capacity, blood transfusions are prohibited. Provided they have capacity and are making an informed decision, they do have the right to autonomy and to make decisions for themselves. Measures are taken before surgery to optimise any existing anemia and careful steps are taken during surgery to minimise blood loss. Thanks for listening to this episode on post-operative care. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman who perfectly edits these podcasts. I hope you can find the time to leave a rating or a review on the podcast. It really helps and motivates me. And I hope you subscribe and we see you in the next episode where we'll talk about intravenous fluids, which is a really important topic.